there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T for C. I am so happy and honored that you press play. This is one of those episodes that falls into the category of must listens. According to the National College Health Assessment, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of students suffering from depression to 40.2% nationwide in 2017, and that is from 32.6% in 2013. I'll do the math for you. That's roughly an 8% increase in just four years. Likewise, during that same period, there's been an increase in those thinking about suicide to 11.5% from 8.1% and those attempting suicide to 1.7% from 1.3% during the same period. And this is the stat that really got me. About one student in 12 has a suicide plan. And so if you feel depressed or overly anxious, or if someone you know and love, I'm so sorry. I wish I could give you a hug. Oh, thank you. It's just, it's so painful for me to think about all of those. I think that statistic, one student in 12 having a a suicide plan. And so my appeal is that if you feel depressed or overly anxious, or if someone you know or love falls into that category, I want you to listen to my next guest because, my gosh, Dr. Ellen Vora just gets it. She is a board-certified psychiatrist, an acupuncturist, and a yoga teacher who takes a functional medicine approach to mental health. What does that mean? And obviously, Dr. Vora will be able to lay that out. But just in a nutshell, it means she is considering the whole person and addressing the root problem or problems that are potentially driving your mental health challenges rather than just reflexively prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. Dr. Vora specializes in depression, anxiety, insomnia, women's mental health, adult ADHD, bipolar, autoimmunity, and digestive issues. By the way, you can also find her courses, her online Online courses on anxiety and insomnia at Mind Body Green. Dr. Vora, that was a far more emotional introduction mm. than I've given. Welcome to Time for Coffee. I don't know if I should ask you if you're caffeinated and ready to go. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is so real. And I'm so glad that you let that flow because I think that's really relatable. A lot of us, when we really let ourselves sit with the statistics and where we're at in terms of our country's mental health, it's deeply distressing. And we universally have been affected personally in some way. And so this is heavy stuff. Am I caffeinated? No, I quit caffeine a couple of months ago. 
So I'm in the minority wow. in, in this in this crew. Nice. We so how talk about that? How has that gone? <laughs> That's been good for me. I think that caffeine. It's a bit. I've had an on again, off again relationship to coffee for my whole adult life, and I had a few remaining pesky symptoms. Really, I had sort of optimized my whole health with nutrition and sleep hygiene and all the different approaches I take to wellness. And a few things remained. I still sweat a lot. Real talk, TMI. And I still <laughs> always had bladder urgency, like discomfort, irritation, and couldn't really crack these until I quit caffeine. And then that's the thing of the past. So it's been a profound change. And by the way, quit caffeine, asterisk. I don't can't approach that lightly. I took about a month to wean down off of one cup of green tea. So I'm extremely sensitive. And I went down to just the last couple of days. I was on a few sips of green tea and then off. Oh, well, listen, congratulations. And I too <laughs> have an on again, off again love affair with coffee. And there are no sacred cows here. And we will be talking about caffeine in this interview because even though it is the brand, I'm all <laughs> about you need to do what works for you. And I really want Java junkies to get their mental health and their physical health optimized. Yeah. And a coffee, if it works for your body, you know, it's the best vice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still wonderful. I love the ritual. And, you know, it's a wonderful, warming, grounding delight for the senses. I think a lot of people get so much value out of it. What it means to me these days is like sitting and connecting with somebody, which, you know, I can party sober and I can connect without caffeine. And so that's what we're doing now. Um, I, so I'm sitting here with herbal tea instead. Okay, listen, whatever works for you. And I'm just glad that you were able to kind of take that big step because it is. It is a big one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Vora, before we start digging into your work, I thought it might be a good idea to help Java junkies better understand what it means to say that you are a holistic psychiatrist. Sure. Yeah. So I think that it's, I define it in distinction to conventional psychiatry, the way I was trained, which was basically to use that Bible of mental health. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and the DSM. And it basically means I meet a patient or by the conventional standard, you meet a patient, you assess their symptoms, you plug it into this DSM Bible and decide, okay, they meet criteria for this diagnosis. And that has a treatment implication, but almost all the time, the treatment implication is medication. And so the DSM is kind of a way to sell a lot of drugs. And that never felt in alignment for me throughout my training. I just couldn't really think about human well-being and the human experience in such a codified, oversimplified way. And so holistic means to me, hey, anybody who walks into my office and is sitting face to face with me, I want to know the whole picture. I want to know, I always tell people, you know, start from the beginning and they're like, um, do you mean like a month ago? And I'm like, well, I kind of mean like when you were a baby in your mother's womb. Although by in terms of epigenetic research, I really want to know about your mom and your grandmother's womb and so on and so forth. You know, it all is part of what makes you you. And I like to know how people feed themselves and how they sleep and whether or not they exercise, how their relationships are how if they find meaning in their life, if they get access to nature, sunshine, what's the quality of the water you're drinking? I think all of this matters to our well-being. And so to me, just thinking about your symptoms and saying, okay, you meet criteria for a diagnosis. This is who you are. That doesn't get at the point 
in my mind. I, I want to know what have you experienced? What traumas? What makes you you on a day to day basis? And that gives me a sense of what's out of balance, where you're not feeling fulfilled. And then that's a call to action, what we can do to get things back into balance to give a better sense of fulfillment in your life. Great. As I said, there are no sacred cows on time for coffee. And the <laughs> elephant in the room is coffee. And I want Java junkies to see time for coffee as a place to come to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You wrote a recent blog about why caffeine is affecting your anxiety more than you think. And you began the post by saying, and I'm going to quote, as a holistic psychiatrist practicing in busy New York City, there are two traits that nearly all of my patients have in common, anxiety and caffeine consumption. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Could you unpack (laughs) that for us? Sure. So I think that this is my favorite thing to do is rather than treating a symptom with a medication. I would much rather address something at the root. And this is no more true than when a medication itself is causing a symptom. So you, I call that the tail chase. It happens in mental health all the time. One antidepressant causes sexual side effects. Then we add another antidepressant, which causes anxiety and insomnia. So then we add a sleep aid and we add an anti-anxiety med and then those cause inattention. And then we add a stimulant and so on and so forth. It just keeps going on. What I've noticed in anxiety is that for some people with anxiety, caffeine itself is a drug that is causing some of their symptoms. And then they get on meds and then the meds cause their own symptoms. And so I like to cut the tail tail chase off at the root. And sometimes for some people, the root is the caffeine. Okay. And it's a tough loss. Nobody, nobody, I've never made a friend telling someone to get off of caffeine. <laughs> nobody likes hearing that. But what I have found is that for my patients who have given this a try and found that it cuts their anxiety in half or sometimes entirely eliminates it, they're like, okay, I miss coffee, but this is pretty good. And do you think in many of those cases, and I don't know if there's any research to back that up, like the anxiety would dissipate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, yeah. So there's a biologic plausibility to this. The anxiety dissipates because caffeine causes a release of cortisol, our stress hormone, and it kind of revs up our nervous system. And for some people, their anxiety is really just that kind of a, like a hair trigger overactive nervous system. And then if you introduce a stressor like traffic or a honking horn or a stressful email from a boss or public speaking or anything like that, then people, it's like the caffeine has almost made their nervous system ready for a fight. You introduce the stressor and then things just fly off the handle. So you can really mitigate our stress response by just taking out these things that amplify the stress response. So for some people, caffeine is one of those and truly not for everybody. We're really variable in how our bodies handle caffeine. And I think one of the more simplistic ways of thinking about it is in terms of whether you're a rapid metabolizer or a slow metabolizer. If anybody out there has ever done the 23andMe testing, they can't tell you a whole lot, um, but they can tell you whether you're a slow or rapid metabolizer of caffeine. And if you're a slow metabolizer, they'll tell you, you're probably sensitive to caffeine. You don't really need a hundred dollar genetic analysis to know whether or not you're sensitive to caffeine. You know, most of us kind of know this about ourselves. There's the, the people that can order an espresso at the end of their big Italian dinner and still go to bed a couple hours later. And then there's people that can have a cup of coffee in the morning and they're like talking fast and interrupting people and thinking that they're the most charming person ever. That was me, right, on coffee. (laughs) I would get too caffeinated at brunch and I'd be like, has anybody ever been as charming as I'm being right now? It was kind of like somebody on cocaine. (laughs) That's what flashed through my mind. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, so I qualify as someone who's sensitive. And so I think most of us can kind of know this about ourselves. And if you're sensitive, and if you are anxious, or you struggle with insomnia, or arguably with depression, then I think it's just a reason to look at caffeine. Doesn't mean this has to be your new life, a coffee-less sad existence. It's just, it behooves you to check it out and see if you can address some of your symptoms at the root. Mm. So you mentioned depression. Mm -hmm. There was another blog post of yours on Mind Body Green that I read recently, and it talks about treating depression like the flu. And I have to tell you, Dr. Vora, it totally resonated with me, and I shared it out on Facebook because it was the first time that I had read a board-certified psychiatrist validating what I have experienced in my own mental health journey. And I want to read your first few sentences to help set the stage. If you ask anyone on the street what causes depression and come across someone who knows a thing or two about mental illness, you're bound to get an answer like, a chemical imbalance, or perhaps even a serotonin deficiency. This idea has been so effectively marketed to us that we almost unanimously accept it as a fact. You might be surprised to hear this theory has not been well documented in the scientific literature. What went through my head when I read what you wrote, Dr. Vora, was, and please excuse me, what the fuck Mm-hmm. This is a theory. <laughs> it is not grounded in research. Yeah, it's not. It's There's a lot of research that's attempted to ground it, but it's mostly grounded in this is what's done. This is the standard of care. And it's, quote unquote, the best we've got. Okay, so what is the best we've got? Yeah, so we can do so much better than that. I think the, the key here is I don't think that this was ever malicious. Like I think well-meaning scientists, well-meaning doctors, psychiatrists, everyone involved, maybe not incredibly well-meaning pharmaceutical industry, but I don't know. I don't know what makes them tick. But basically, the world has wanted to help depressed people. And there were a couple of experiences in the research realm where people were treating people for tuberculosis and that impacted serotonin and it seemed to impact depression and that got people thinking, okay, depression is about serotonin. So let's develop drugs that address this. It was deductive reasoning from the beginning. And then we came up with all these medications. Depression is super interesting because what we do know, very well documented in the literature, is that the placebo effect has a profound impact on treatment depression. And that's not to say anybody who's ever benefited from an SSRI was faking it or just gullible. You know, that's not what that means at all. But it does speak to the power of our expectations and what it feels like to be cared for and in treatment where someone's paying attention to and listening to you and trying to help you. That actually is very healing. But then basically, the research has tried to say, okay, then if this is about a serotonin imbalance, this must show up by some objective measures. We've looked with blood tests, we've looked by doing spinal taps and checking cerebral spinal fluid of whether it's different in someone who's died by suicide versus someone who's died by other means. We've looked at, I was in a lab during my research fellowship year in med school where we use PET scans, positron emission tomography. This is like high-tech, big-ticket research at the Columbia University. Amazing lab with an incredible 
PI, everyone was brilliant in this lab. And we tried desperately to document what are the objective differences in a depressed brain or an anxious brain. And it's really hard to point to anything. And it's extremely difficult to say it's about serotonin. So serotonin has a role, but it's not as simple as more is better or less is worse. And then we have this entire industry selling us drugs that treat our so-called chemical imbalance. And they're not about to back down from this philosophy because it really makes billions of dollars. And on some level, people feel that it's helping. And so we, who's really interested in changing this model? <laughs> it's not really the psychiatrist. It's not the pharmaceutical industry. It's not the bodies of education, like the medical schools and the psychiatry residency programs. They're all built up around this and they don't really know of a better option. And meanwhile, the patient's like, well, I need to do something. And so I'll do this. So nobody's really invested in learning the better way, but there are better ways. So let's talk about those better ways. And I should also say for a period of years, I want to say like 15 years, I was on Wellbutrin in recent years, like maybe six years ago, seven years ago, my psychologist recommended that I go on an anti-anxiety medication they kind of sort of like a little bit helped. And I'm guessing it was also the psychosomatic, like, oh, I'm on something, it should be helping. And then in the last year, I completely changed my diet. I went off those medications and I'm feeling so much happier, so much better than I did when I was on them. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. So the better way it has to do, there are many different actual real root causes to depression. And it can be a little bit different for everybody. For some people, their thyroid is under-functioning. Sometimes that's an autoimmune condition. Sometimes it's related to stress. It can be other causes as well. Sometimes someone actually just isn't getting adequate nutrition and they're literally missing vitamin B12 or missing zinc or missing some of the essential nutrients that we need to have our brain perform properly. Some people are consuming a food that they don't tolerate. So it's creating chronic systemic inflammation. And that inflammation is impacting the brain and the brain feels lousy. It's thinking, I'm sick. I want to go crawl under a cave. For some people, it's more psycho-spiritual. I've had patients who really don't have anything physically out of balance, but they are not in alignment with some aspect of the way they're living their life. Maybe they're in a bad relationship. Maybe they're in a line of work that's out of alignment for who they're really here to be. And so some people just don't go to bed <laughs> early enough and are just chronically sleep deprived and that can create mood disorders. So you have to get a real, to take stock and do inventory of all these different factors that can play a role in mood and get a sense for what's working, what's not working. And then you address these different root causes. And what I've learned in my practice is that usually pretty much does the job. And if I, when I'm lucky, I meet a patient who's never been on psych meds and they come in and it's like, okay, I'm not feeling so well, but I don't want to go on meds. For me, that's candy. Like, I love that. It's a little investigation. You figure out what's out of balance. You help somebody feel heard and understood and empowered and hopeful. And you get them usually just eating better, sleeping better, exercising a little bit more. And bada bing, bada boom, they're really feeling better. And it's like, fly away, little birdie. You don't need me anymore. And they're just, they're thriving. I'm completely obsolete at that point. And then 
the harder challenge is having been on meds and meds really change the picture. I'm curious, uh, the Wellbutrin, I understand, the anti-anxiety med that you took, I want to clarify, it might have been a benzodiazepine, in which case that's certainly not a placebo. (laughs) We should be clear about that because those are really strong medications. They're not working by placebo effect. They're working as like, uh, like you've had a few cocktails. They're very strong. (laughs) So they really do have a very real biochemical impact in the brain. Gosh, Um, I'm trying to even remember the name of the drug off the top of my head. And I can't- them if you want. I'm sorry? I can list them if you want. They yeah, go them. ahead. Uh, could be Clonopin or Xanax or Ativan or could have been Lexapro. Lexapro. There you go. Okay. So that's an SSRI. So that's a different story. The SSRIs basically work. I think of the way they work is, is twofold. There is a lot of evidence documenting that they work by placebo effect. They don't really separate from placebo in large meta-analyses. Um, but I do think it's not to say they do nothing. They do something. They narrow the range of experience. They numb a bit. And for some people, especially people really severely depressed, that can look like improvement because somebody is going from crying all the time every day to suddenly seemingly kind of patched up like they're not crying. And in the eyes of our like, I don't know, Puritan ethics, like we look at that, it's like, okay, you're better. But I think that to me, that's not health really, because I think to be healthy, we need to feel our feelings. We need to be able to flex in all the directions, the full range of human feelings. And I think that the SSRIs do narrow that experience a bit. So the, the lows are less low, but the highs are less high as well. Yes, I would actually say, and this is not about me, but the other thing that I have been struggling with is hypothyroid. Mm -hmm. And so, and as part of my treatment, I mentioned changing my diet, but I also have been getting acupuncture treatments. Mm -hmm. So, and exercise, you know, and enough sleep. It's a holistic approach to getting myself feeling centered, physically, mentally, feeling more energy. But I want to ask you, Dr. Vora, about inflammation Mm -hmm. and to explain to Java junkies how inflammation in our bodies actually can manifest in our brains. Yeah. So inflammation in our bodies, that can mean a lot of different things. But basically, if if the immune system is kind of chronically activated, the brain is a physical fleshy organ like anywhere else. And that inflammation, it's not like the brain is completely siphoned off from that. Now, some people would point out there is a bit of a siphoning off. The brain has the blood-brain barrier. It's in certain ways not exposed to all of the same things that are in the bloodstream that the rest of the body is exposed to. But we got that wrong for a long time to think that it's not exposed to immune activation. The brain absolutely is. And the glial cells and the whole, there's 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 a whole immune system happening in the brain as well. So chronic inflammation, your brain hears that. And it sends a really important message to the brain. It basically says, I'm sick and I'm fighting an infection. And so in the olden days, like on the proverbial savannah where we evolved, it's the brain is like, oh, okay, we, we caught a bug and now we're sick. So let's go retreat to a cave. Let's rest. Let's isolate from the group because we don't want to infect others. Let's not be interested in sex or like going out and like meeting people and hanging out right now. Let's just rest and feel a little lousy and feel a little bit like, I can't come on. This sucks. It'll affect appetite. It'll affect energy. 
and your brain wants to just rest until you your immune system has had the time to fight off this infection and then you're back in the game. That system worked pretty well when our biggest threat to our immune system was in fact infectious disease. Those days are gone. We've kind of gotten to a place where infectious disease is not our biggest threat. We've, we have an extremely hygienic world. We don't have this many, as much exposure to parasites or microbes. And we do have, God forbid, antibiotics if and when something really is serious in that way. But what we are exposed to right now and what are the real threat to our immune system is, is these inflammatory substances alongside a compromised gut flora. And that's kind of a one-two punch of modern living because it's our gut flora. It's all those different beneficial bacteria in our digestive tract that train our nervous system. And if we can curse, the way I think about it is that's what tells our immune system on a daily basis to calm the fuck down. <laughs> so mm -hmm. basically, when we've compromised that through taking antibiotics, through birth by C-section, lack of breastfeeding, antibiotic residue in our tap water, sugar in the diet, alcohol in the diet, chronic stress, so on and so forth, then we don't have those beneficial bacteria in our guts, um, a really diverse population of them telling our, our immune system to calm down. So our immune system is thinking, ah, I'm freaking out. And then we consume all this food that's super inflammatory. And maybe if we had a really diverse, good gut ecosystem, we could handle a little bit of it. But we're missing the gut microbes and we're eating a lot of inflammatory food. And that combination has us chronically inflamed. So the brain is constantly thinking, oh, I have another infection and another infection and I'm not beating this infection. But we're never really beating the infection because we're ingesting it anew every single day. I listened to the podcast interview that you did on Mind Body Health, and I loved something that you said. You said our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos. Uh -huh, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. We, 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 our immune system is designed to fight off microbes, and microbes are sort of not the main issue right now, but instead the inflammatory agents we're introducing are processed foods. And we just did not design. We weren't designed for that. And so that'll be another few millennia from now that our immune system is amazing at fighting off Doritos and then there'll be a new problem to contend with. But right now, it's just a software issue. We just have a machine built for an entirely different situation. So when you said our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos, for Java junkies listening right now, and trust me, I used to enjoy Cool Ranch as much as the next, you know, me too. snacker out there. But what is our body doing? What is our brain doing to give us the message that, hey, please don't feed me any more Doritos? Well, if it is, that message is getting overruled by the drug-like effects of these foods. So I too was uh, partial to Cool Ranch. I always <laughs> thought it was the superior Dorito flavor. Um, but basically, I think the lucky, if you think about in your friend circle, people you know, the ones who are like, my stomach hurts, you know, <laughs> like this gives me migraines, so this gives me a headache and that makes me bloated. We think of them as the sickly ones, but it's possible that their bodies are actually in certain ways better at communicating, hey, this food is poison. Whereas those of us who are just resilient and bouncing around can eat anything and feel fine. Sometimes it's actually like that we're not good at listening to our bodies. And sometimes it's actually that our bodies are not great at communicating. So some people's bodies say, hey, this food gives me a headache or makes me bloated. But usually what's the 
stronger signal is that these foods are very, they, they behave like drugs. You know, in food science, these foods are engineered to hit that bliss point of perfect amount of salt and fat. And it has that perfect crunch right in that palate of your mouth. And basically, we're just really like they know human beings. And they're like, this will be something that you'll just like all of us, everyone listening right now who has ever tasted a Dorito is salivating a little bit right now as we're thinking about this and talking about it. So it's a drug and we get a little bit addicted to it. And I think that usually overrules the signals from our body of this is making me sick. What about the way it manifests in their mental health? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes beyond Doritos. It may be other foods out there. In fact, it is other foods out there in which we are inadvertently inflaming our bodies and our brains. How can Java junkies better listen to the signals that their bodies are sending them? Great question. Yeah. So I think that it's the real key, the gold standard here is to do an elimination diet. I like the Whole30 diets. I think that they're just brilliant and how they've crafted the verbiage around it. It's very concise and pithy and it's funny. And they're basically like, because what I encounter when I tell patients to do an elimination diet is, hey doc, this is hard. And I usually really just empathize because I live this life and I'm like, you know what? It is hard. It really is hard. It takes discipline. It takes preparation. It takes a little bit of sacrifice. But <laughs> Whole30 is like, no, no, no. Childbirth is hard. This is not hard. <laughs> so I like putting it in that perspective. It is challenging, but it's doable. And I think ways to listen to your body. So most people, like when I talk to patients about gluten, they're like, no, nah, gluten's not a problem for me. It's like, okay, well, what makes you think that? And usually people will think, well, you know, my digestion is fine. So I don't think I have a problem with gluten. And so an inflammatory food like gluten, that can show up in a lot of different ways. If you have eczema, if you have ADHD, autism, learning disability, chronic sinus infections, migraines, other headaches, bloating, distension, heartburn, like GERD, hemorrhoids, chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, any autoimmunity at all, psoriasis, thyroid condition, rheumatoid arthritis, and mental illness, really, if you have depression, anxiety, insomnia, ADHD, bipolar, schizophrenia, all of these in my mind point towards gluten. And I don't mean to just be like a hammer that only sees gluten. I swear I try every day to to not tell somebody in my practice to go gluten-free. I really try. But it's just, it's always just like too obvious. Somebody is chronically constipated or they have eczema or they are always bloated or they have a family member with schizophrenia. These are all to me indications that gluten is playing a role. Can Mm -hmm. I just want to interject here because one of the yeah. one of the responses that I've heard from people and frankly from other medical doctors is but that person doesn't have Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Celiac, yeah. Or excuse me, celiac yeah. disease. Yeah, that yeah. person doesn't have celiac. Why do you think that is the wrong marker? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't. I, I, most of the time they don't, although celiac incidence is actually increasing, which is a little disturbing. But so they don't. But celiac is the tip of the iceberg. It's one of many, many, many manifestations of the body not tolerating gluten. And there are a lot of different components to gluten that your body cannot tolerate. And there are a lot of different ways that your immune system is, is getting activated by it. So celiac is one of many. But I think that the interesting resistance to me is that I have you know, encountered so many of my colleagues, so many of my patients, other doctors say, we tested you for celiac, you don't have it, so no need to avoid gluten. And I usually just say, is it worth a month trying going gluten-free and just seeing how you feel? 
And if your mood gets more stable or you're suddenly pooping every day, then who cares what the blood test shows you? It doesn't matter if you have celiac or not at that point. We've increased your quality of life, We've improved your functioning by going gluten-free. I do still build caveats into that because it's not something I approach lightly to convert someone over to the dark side of the gluten-free lifestyle because it's a big change. And I think that when you pulled back the curtain and showed someone you can live without bloating and without migraines, I think it makes them very sensitive. So if they decide this isn't worth my trouble and I want to go back to gluten, sometimes they really do feel a lot worse suddenly. And I kind of made that problem for them by having them go gluten-free. So I don't approach it lightly. It's all a balance of how is your suffering, you know, and is it, does it warrant making these kinds of lifestyle changes? Sure. Thank you. (laughs) You have talked about four pillars to mental health. Could you break those down for us? Sure. Although I think just as in uh, when I talked to Jason Lockhoff about it, I I always think it's like more like 15 pillars, but we try to keep it simple. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. But where I usually start, I think nutrition is number one. I always want to know what somebody's eating. And I basically want to transition their diet over to one that's nutrient dense and eliminating the inflammatory foods. And it's really both of those. It's not just that you want to get off everything that's inflammatory because you can get off everything that's inflammatory. And suddenly you're just eating sweet potatoes and you're in a starvation mood and you're much more anxious and suddenly you're not sleeping and women stop menstruating and you don't feel any better. So it's really important, the other piece of that puzzle, which is eating, it's a nutritional scavenger hunt. You know, over the course of the day, you need to somehow get zinc and all the B vitamins and protein and fat and carbohydrate. And so to really eat plentifully and a varied diet of really nutritious food, that's what it takes to really use nutrition to heal mental health issues. That's the first pillar. The second one is sleep. Sleep sleep is transformative and we're almost all going about it wrong. And I love the iPhone, but it's screwing up all of our sleep. And so basically getting the phone out of the bedroom, using a regular alarm clock instead, really winding down light in the evening so that our brains get that cue of this is nighttime, it's time to feel sleepy. And many of us need to go to bed earlier. And then of course, Java comes to play a little bit with insomnia issues, but at least getting strategic about when you time your caffeine consumption so that you're not still caffeinated when you're trying to sleep at night. That's the second pillar. The third is exercise. And usually my take on this is to really just lower everybody's standards. I think it's wonderful when people have a really intense exercise regimen. It's great when someone has a very devoted yoga practice or they're working with a trainer, or they're doing high intensity interval training, all that is amazing. If that's not happening for you, then rather than being all or nothing about this and thinking like, okay, if I'm not training for a triathlon, then I'm just, I'm not in an exercise mode. But just having something really realistic and attainable and cheap and free and it doesn't suck if it's raining outside, just like something you do in your living room for free for a few minutes every day, I think is a great way to approach exercise. That's all I do at this point. I'm too busy. I used to have one of those full devoted yoga practices and it was great, really served me. And I think it kept me sane through med school, but I can't manage it anymore. So now I do about five or 10 minutes of Pilates or yoga. I just dance in my living room (laughs) and that's what I do. And it's not amazing, but it's so much better than nothing and it is sustainable. So that's number three. And then the last one, let's call it stress management, but it's basically... Let's lump the whole psycho-spiritual stuff into that. Like you want to perceive your life as fulfilling. You want to find that you have positive stress, like the kind that makes you feel engaged in your life, but not toxic stress where you just always feel burnt out and invalidated and that your that your needs aren't taken into account. You know, there's so many ways that we can be toxically stressed in the workplace. We need a sense of autonomy, some locus of control over our 
schedule and to feel like our work matters. And then I think it's not a pillar, but community is, let's call it the fifth pillar. I think we just, we need community. We need friends. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be heard and understood. We need to connect. And this is a weird state that we're in where we are hyper-connected digitally, but it doesn't quite satisfy everything that our human bodies need. And so we need to physically connect with the people in the room. Yes, absolutely. That is so important. And they're hopefully Java junkies at school are taking advantage of being on campus to get involved in different clubs and extracurricular activities just to find their tribe while they're, Mm. you know, while they're there. And, And for those who've already graduated, there are all kinds of things people can do in their free time on the weekends. And thank goodness for the internet, they can Google that to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Vora, I would love to learn more about your own journey to where mm-hmm. you are today. You were an English major at Yale. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? <laughs> no, it technically was both. I was pre-med and an English major. And that was kind of the, the hip thing to do at the time. <laughs> they would tell you like, actually, the med schools prefer that you be a humanities major. They just, they're like, it's dime a dozen, all these biology majors. And I was wow. like, sweet, because I, I don't want to take a bunch of biology classes. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I came into college, like in high school, I was all about biology and I loved studying the brain. I had like, an infinite thirst for understanding that better. But I also liked English. And then I came into college and what just felt right to me was humanities. I wanted to just explore the human condition from every possible angle. And so that's where I wanted to focus my energy. Really, I walked through the bookstore one day when I was in crisis. I was like trying to decide my major. And I was like, well, let me just pick the aisle in the college bookstore where there's the most books that I want to read. (laughs) And and it was, you know, heads and tails, the English aisle. That being said, I'm like, I must be dyslexic or something. So I don't think I finished a single book in college, maybe just Anna Karenina, but nothing else. And so it, it was a struggle for me. I was always, I was still eating gluten then, you know, so my brain didn't function properly. I couldn't really focus uh, or get anything done, but I knew that I loved learning these things. Now in the day and age of Audible, that's changed everything. Now I listen to books and I'm able to read a book a week now. Fantastic. But so Yeah, that was why I was an English major. And then I just kept doing the pre-med on the side. I never felt totally right about it. That feeling continued through all four years of med school, a year of fellowship, a year of internship, and then three additional years of psychiatry residency. It never quite felt right. I don't know what to say other than the fact that I'm kind of like a high achiever inertia type person. (laughs) It's like, you know, I'm, I, back then I didn't know how to say no to things I hated. So it was like, well, this is a prestigious option. So I should go with that. I should, I should say yes. You know, anytime we're using should, you know, something's a little awry. So I felt like I should go pursue all of this. But it turns out, I think there might have been some intuitive wisdom deep, 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 deeply buried under all of my like being lost and confused because it ends up being exactly what I'm here to do. But that wasn't clear to me until the very end. So were there any extracurriculars or clubs or internships or things that you did as an undergrad at Yale that in hindsight really do apply to the profession that you're in and the specialty that you've selected? Huh. <laughs> 
if we talk about in my 20s and 30s, then yes. In college, I remember thinking once, like, does hanging out with my boyfriend count as an extracurricular? <laughs> but, no. <laughs> well, what I did was I sang in a, oh God, this is, no, I'm not even going to say that out loud. I'm a terrible singer. I was in a, I was the white girl in the African-American step dance troupe, which is the coolest thing I've ever been part of. I thought I was so fierce. When I look at the videos now, I was such floppy spaghetti, but it was Aww. really cool. And yeah, it's just the coolest art form. And and just so powerful is this tribe of women just creating music with by slapping our bodies and snapping and stomping. That's what I did. I think that was my main extracurricular apart from hanging out with my boyfriend. So yeah. <laughs> that's college. That's college. That I'm is sure I did college. something else, but nothing else that I even can remember. So it probably didn't really matter to me. <laughs> but look at that. I mean, you've gone into a specialty in psychiatry in which you are also trying to help women's mental health. So, yeah. and you're dancing in your, in your apartment and your living room. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Women has been a thread. I think that in college, when I was feeling the pre-med thing, I was like, you know what I want to do? I want to become an OBGYN and I want to run Planned Parenthood. <laughs> so that's what I thought I wanted to do. I, in med school, I quickly learned OBGYN is not for me. And that's a really, really tough lifestyle and culturally not a good fit for me. But as somebody who's now like converted over to the world of home birth and midwifery. But I think that at the time, I knew that there's just something about the female experience that is underappreciated, not being understood. And that has only blossomed for me over the years. I see so many patients come in feeling so invalidated in their experience in healthcare. I think that the healthcare system, and this is male and female doctors, there's a systemic misogyny to it. I remember being trained in this way, right? We used to have the term hysteria. And so that's like literally the root of that is hist is uterus, right? So it's kind of like, well, you're dysfunctional because you're a woman. And I think that we don't say that anymore. It's not PC, but I think we still feel it and think it about patients. And so we call it different things. But I think that women go in and talk about their experience being in a female body, which is such complicated machinery. It's being asked to do so many things. It's more complex than the male body. And I think that the physical experience of being in the female body is really tricky. And they go into their doctors and they say, hey, this isn't feeling right. This isn't feeling right. And they're effectively told a lot of the time, it's just anxiety or, you know, or worse, like you're crazy. And so I, I see women like with shame and they're apologetic for their symptoms and they really expect to be kind of kicked around. And I really try to change their experience with engaging with healthcare. I want people to feel validated. I want people to understand that they're the guru of their body. If they're feeling in a certain way, that's truth. And even if we can't point to an objective lab test about it, that is their true experience. This is how they're feeling. So I think that the African Step Dance Troupe totally set the groundwork for this. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Vora, could you share a professional challenge that you may have had over the course of your career to date in which you weren't sure exactly how to navigate it, but did and maybe share how you persevered? Yeah, so many. Yeah, so, so many. I think throughout med school, that was just one huge professional challenge. I just did not feel in alignment with it. And I think even since I got to the other side of that training process and I've been in practice, it became clear if I just keep pursuing things that do feel in alignment for me, then I'm on the right track. So 
So I started pursuing Chinese medicine and acupuncture and Ayurveda and functional medicine. I now practice in a way that feels true for me. It feels philosophically in alignment with what I'm here to do. But so my job is very fulfilling and feels right, but it's still incredibly humbling and challenging. And I would say that maybe there's like a lot of people out there running around who've been helped by the work I do, but what sticks with me are the few that really have not been. And mental health is never straightforward. And so I think that it's been helpful to get a few more, I don't know if I have gray hairs, but like effectively gray hairs. Mostly it shows up as lines on my forehead. <laughs> I think that that's been helpful because it's given me the authority to say, I don't know. It's given me the authority to be really humbled and to just realize that if I think I know, like I have another thing coming <laughs> because it's every, every person that walks into my office, it's a new journey. And I always have to kind of start with a beginner's mind and think anything is possible here. And yeah, because as soon as I take something I learned from the last case and apply it to the next person, I'm always humbled and kind of like, you know, a wave slams me with uh, like this situation's completely different. And so it, it just keeps me nimble and, and always humble and questioning what the heck is going on and how can I help this person? Well, thank you for sharing that. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, if you could go back to Yale and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. So I think that I thought about this recently. I think it came up in conversation recently. I, I think the most important thing is to know, is to be able to tell yourself you're going to be okay. Because the fact is challenges happen. Like my life has not been without challenge. It's come down the pipeline. But actually, I've been okay through the challenges. And I'm still okay. And I kind of know that I'm resilient and strong. And you could throw a lot at me right now. And I'd be okay. And Jinxie Cat, if you're hearing me say that, please don't. But you know, I, I trust that I'll I can handle it. And I think that if only my college self could have known I'd be okay, there'd be a lot less to worry about and stress about, just less angst. So I think that, yeah, I think if we could just tell ourselves, take a deep breath, do a little yoga, go gluten-free and and you'll be okay. And caffeine-free maybe. Well, yeah, I, I never I never would have listened to if my, if my elder, wiser self came in and said, go caffeine-free. I'd be like, mm, this, is, <laughs> this is a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Vora, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee, even if it was decaffeinated or without caffeine entirely. With me and the Java Junkie community, I am just so grateful that the medical profession has people like you in it who are really trying to get to the root causes of one of the biggest kind of epidemics that we're facing today, not just among Java junkies, but also people who are their parents and grandparents. And I want Java junkies to go to Mind Body Green if they would like to take a course of yours on anxiety or insomnia or both, and to make sure to read your blog posts that are both on Mind Body Green and also on your website. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. This was really good. And thanks for spreading this message. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.